Amen. Second Peter chapter two tonight. Second Peter two and enjoyed the singing, choir song, and and then the ladies ensemble. Love that song. Love hearing our ladies sing. And then uh, Brian and Beth, thank you so very much. Second Peter chapter number two. We're going to continue the message from this morning and the lessons that God has for us. The Bible tells us that. That the things that happened to those in the Old Testament were given to us for our examples. One, one of the things about that very statement found in 1 Corinthians is that the Bible is not just a history book, it's to be a, a devotional book for us. And God's trying to help us in our lives to be able to not just give us facts, but also to stir within us faith in Him, because without faith it's impossible to please Him. He wants us to be confronted with Truth and be able to experience the great and mighty things that God has in store for us. Second Peter chapter two. We'll look at the New Testament, one of the New Testament passages that mention mentions a lot and that stand together. We'll read beginning verse number four. <clears throat> for if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell. And delivered them into, the, into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. And spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an ensamples unto those that after should live ungodly. And delivered just lot, vexed. Again, there's the word we mentioned this morning. Means to torture. Vexed, tortured with the filthy conversation of the wicked. The word conversation is not the speaking; it's the lifestyle. For that righteous man dwelling among them, not doing with them, but dwelling among them. In seeing and hearing, vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. I want us to continue this, uh, this evening, a few more point, points to add to the three we looked at this morning on some lessons we can lose from Lot the loser. So let's dive right into this. Thank you. Please be seated. We saw this morning your direction, not your intention, is what determines your destination. There are many a person, if you ask them, you don't want to go to hell, do you? And you want to go to heaven, don't you? And they say, yes, I, I, I want to go to heaven. I don't want to go to hell, but it's not enough just to desire heaven. They must then make a decision. They must make the right decision in order to experience Bible salvation. And so it is within the Christian life. Desire alone is not sufficient. In fact, when it comes to God looking for the men that would be leaders within the church. He says in 1 Timothy 3, in verse 1, that if a man desires the office of a bishop, he desires a good thing. But he didn't say just go with what he desires. 
Then Paul tells Timothy, well, there's some things that have to be chosen, deliberately done within his life. There needs to be a process, a way of living a life. Because it's your direction, not your desire and intent alone that determines your destination. There's a process. There's the trajectory that we're looking at. I was tempted to have Brother Chris Cherry bring in a golf club and demonstrate this matter of, uh, of, of lining up and, and hitting a ball. He and Brother Autry played golf the other day and and, and I, I really don't know anything about golf. Um, I, I just read body language a lot. And when the very few times I ever went, I just knew that, you know, guy jumping up and down, celebrating, usually was a good thing. A guy throwing his club across the green usually was not a good thing. And, but, but they can determine where the ball's going to go. Somebody analyzing just based upon the way they line up and the way their body is positioned, the way their hands are positioned, the way their, their head and eyes are looking. And that's the, the same with many a sport because it's the trajectory. It's where your feet are pointed. It's where you're, you're looking. Number two, we saw that what you set your eyes on, you begin to value. Lot. The Bible says that he lifted up his eyes and he beheld this well plain, uh, this, this, this ground that reminded him of Egypt. It was a wealthy, it was very prosperous, it was a good land. The problem was, it was putting him in a direction, in a process of getting him to Sodom. Remember, he didn't wake up and say, I want to go to Sodom. He just woke up living by feelings rather than living by faith. Number three, we saw tolerating what God hates. Tolerating what God hates will eventually lead you to experiencing what even you hate. There is pleasure in sin for a season. The other season is the season of great regret. And you end up doing the very things that you hated because... Sin always has your best interest at heart. That is to get you to enjoy it, to treat sin like it's a stray animal. Bring it in, feed it. Don't let it come in the house. Just keep it out there, but take care of it. Somebody needs to pay attention to it. And little by little, you bring it in and, and that animal becomes attached and so does the sin. A sin turns into a stronghold, and a stronghold strangles. When lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. When sin is finished, it always results in death. We're talking about Lot. Lot had every advantage known to any man. He was given the great man of faith, the only man that's called a friend of God, his uncle Abraham. Lot was a part of that beginning. He could have written Abraham's biography because he was there when all this began to take place. But he didn't learn the lessons of faith that Abraham learned. Lot found himself in trouble, in a mess. He made some decisions. His decisions in turn made him. He experienced God stepping in, delivering him, giving him a second chance and a third chance. 
Lot experienced God. But the problem is he didn't live by faith in the same God that his uncle Abraham lived with and lived by, walking with and walking for. Lot instead, he lived by feelings. He lived by sight. And what happens is we don't see what's wrong with it today. And so therefore we conclude it's not a bad thing. Let me remind you. Just because you can doesn't mean that you should. Lot was given the choice by Abraham, where do you want to go? Well, it's Abraham's fault then. Abraham is the one who gave Lot the opportunity. No, Lot still could have chose just like Elisha did with Elijah. As long as God is alive and you're alive, I'm sticking with you. But Lot took advantage of the freedom and he chose that which Lot wanted. You know, Abraham got the raw end of the deal. He got what was left over. But to Abraham, God said, now you lift up your eyes. Lot got what he wanted. I'm going to give you what I want. Lot's going to get what he can do. I'm going to give you what only God can do. Why? Because... Just because Lot was able and had the freedom to choose didn't mean that it was right for him to choose something that appealed to his flesh but did not appeal to God. So let me go to number four this evening. Number four, looking at Lot and one of the problems that Lot experienced and a lesson we can learn from Lot is that you cannot drift into godliness. You cannot drift into godliness. Living for Jesus in this world will always feel like an uphill battle because you're going against the current and everything in the world will pull you in the other direction. If you're not going to actively fight the good fight of faith, you will drift. And any time you drift, you're going to drift the wrong direction. No one ever drifts towards God. James said in chapter 4, you draw nigh to God. You deliberately, by faith, deliberation, on purpose, you draw close to Him. No one drifts to God. Hebrews warns us of the danger of drifting. Why? Because drifting always takes us away from God. To go with Jesus, you have to swim against the current. And to go with Jesus, it's going to take deliberate effort. If Jesus, listen, if Jesus is not what is exciting you, it might be that you have a callus on your soul. When you need something to always pump you up and something else to always motivate you outside of Jesus, there's a callus on your soul. There's a danger in the church being that which is giving you a spiritual high. A lot of churches are catering even to having to have big event, big event, this meeting and this meeting and this meeting. And what is happening is the church has become the lifeline when Jesus through the church ought to be the lifeline. It ought to be Jesus that motivates you. It ought to be Jesus that satisfies you. 
Remember Jesus said in Matthew chapter seven, we talked about verse 13 and 14, the two roads. There's the broad road and there's many that will find themselves on the road because it's just easy. You drift on that road. But then there's the narrow road. It's a difficult road because you have to be deliberate and you have to choose and there's few that seem to find it. It's like going out to the ocean. They warn you of an undercurrent. You may not see it on the top. You may not see it at, at the glance of the eye, but it's there. And if you're not deliberate, you just hang out, just floating. It can take you further than you ever imagined. And it can take you to a point where many have experienced a point of no return. Most people, I believe most people, especially on a Sunday night in church, they want to serve God. But I find that too many times people want to serve God only in an advisory capacity. And God doesn't need our advisory capacity skills. He doesn't need us to be his counselors. Don't ask God to cram his plan into your puny little mind because then God would be limited by your understanding. God is looking for those who are willing to trust him no matter what. If you're, drift, if you're drifting tonight, it's because you're not actively seeking God. You're not actively seeking to know God and his word. That's the point of our Sunday school series, our theme for the year, experiencing God, so that we would be delivered and not just accidental, not just occasional. We're to be pilgrims here upon this earth. We ought not be pilgrims with God. It's not that we reject the Bible. It's just that too often we give time to Snapchat, TikTok, Instagram reels, Netflix binging, video games. You spend your time on your phone, you're going to find your time staring at the life of Sodom. And what's left over for spiritual growth is just going to be piddling. See, you'll never drift into spiritual maturity. One of the great lessons from Lot is you don't find Lot making a diligent effort to get back to the God he was introduced to. You'll never drift into spiritual maturity. It's going to take daily, focused effort. How come you're always running around looking for God, as some people will say? I'm trying to find God. Well, he's not lost. Seek him. He'll be found of you. If you haven't found them today, it's only because you're not looking for them. In order to become what no one else is becoming, you're going to have to do what no one else is doing. Get serious about the one who's serious about you. Number five. Your choices. Looking at another lesson we can learn from Lot. Your choices will directly impact those you love and the generations coming behind you. Your choices will directly impact those you love and the generations coming behind you. You don't live in isolation. No one in here, you say, I'm a loner, I live alone. 
I exist all by myself. I'm in a vacuum. What I do affects nobody. It's not true. You've been duped into believing that, but it's not true. You know, as bad as things got for Lot, in Genesis chapter 19, we read that his tragic tale still wasn't over. I'll summarize the end of his life from Genesis 19, and if you want the gory details, you can read it for yourself. You know, after Lot lost his wealth, his home, his wife, Lot and his two daughters settled up in the mountains and lived in a cave. And there we find, oh, how the mighty, comfortable had fallen. His daughters, the same ones Lot had offered up to that mob of perverts, they wanted kids so bad that they committed such heinous crimes. Even Mari Povich wouldn't touch that one. The descendants of those incestuous relationships would become tribes that would be at war with the Israelites for centuries. It's just my life, Lot concluded. Nobody else. It's just us. Not a big deal. Who are we hurting? But the, the lesson Lot failed to get through to his heart was that your choices will always directly impact those that you love and the generations coming behind you. What happens is, what happened with Lot is what happens so often today. People see today it's not a big deal. And in your eyes and mine, a lot of what we're doing today may not be a big deal. But what Abraham, what God was trying to get through to Lot is that the decision you're making today may not spring up for some time later. And what you're doing today is, is maybe not the reaping. That's why it doesn't look so bad. A lot of what you might be doing is just some planting, some sowing. But be not deceived. God's not mocked. Lot's choices did not just affect him. And neither do our choices just affect us. Lot's choices got his wife killed. It ruined the lives of his two daughters and his sons and his grandsons and their descendants for generations. See, your choices never just affect you. They never do. They always affect those you love in the generations to come. They never just, just affect us. Sunday nights we started and I think I only got one message into it on the parenting and then with the interruption of the summer never really got back to it but let me, let me apply some parenting perspective here. There's nothing more guaranteed to create insecurity in a child than your child believing that there seems to be no boundaries. Lot provided no boundaries for his kids. Saved a lot. No security. I've often said, if, you're, if you were to take your hand and, and put it on the side of that wall, and those on that side, you just reach over, and you put your hand on that wall, and that wall moves six inches, you're probably not going to just shrug your shoulders and sit back down. And a lot of times, young people, 
because they get from moms and dads, I want to push on this wall a little bit. And when moms and dads, they budge, and just like you're used to the world budging, you may get what you want, your kids may get what they want, but they're not going to get what they need. See, parenting is a lot of modeling of our Heavenly Father. You know, every time God says, thou shalt not, what he's simply saying is, don't hurt yourself. I don't want you to be hurt. Don't eat of the tree at the garden of, there in the garden of, um, that, that God has created, that was so perfect in the tree of, 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 of knowledge and, and that tree of, of good and evil, that tree of, of, of just so much interest. No, no, no need of that. Because if you do it, you'll have too much fun. That wasn't God's opinion. God wanted them to have a blast. But see, the devil was the one trying to get them to see, God doesn't want you to do this because he's just afraid you're going to, well, you're going to have too much fun. And he doesn't want you to have too much fun. No, God is saying, I don't want you to hurt yourself. I want you to have the time of your life enjoying perfection. And when God says, every time he says, thou shalt do something, what he's saying is help yourself to happiness. See, God only wants for us what we would want for ourselves if we were smart enough to want it. Proverbs 19, 18, chasten thy son while there is hope and let not thy soul spare for his crying. We don't need a Hebrew lesson to understand that concept. So what are we doing instead of giving Bible hope? I'm going to preach a message some point on who's parenting who. In the home, somebody's parenting too often is not the ones that God has called to be the parents. And so instead of giving hope and providing discipline and the security that comes with that, what has happened is we've allowed the society to help shepherd our kids' hearts. The smartphone has become the painkiller, promising to solve the loneliness problem, but it's really cloaking the pain of another moment. The iGen generation is a label given to those born between 1995 and 2012. And so these statistics are a little bit older but I at least want to give these to you to give an idea. These would be more drastic. I just, I, I want to be able to footnote them. And so I, I'll give you the updated ones. But I want to go with that group, 1995 to 2012. This would be from, um, this would be 18, about five years old. Jean Twinge, she's a psychologist at San Diego State University. And she has done a very systematic study about the iGen, the 1995 to 2012 group. 
And she ran the data sets, conducted the interviews, and, and she voiced her concerns, first published in a feature article for The Atlantic under a title that, that I thought was interesting, Have Smartphones Destroyed a Generation? That was the name of it. That was the article. Well, she expanded the article, which went into a book. And, um, and so here's the book, iGen. Why today's super-connected kids are growing up less rebellious, more tolerant, less happy, and completely unprepared for adulthood. That's a title right there. I like the way she entitles her books. But here's some of the things she came up with because of, of, of that group that she's referring to, depression, though it had leveled out and even decreased in the 90s and into the 2000s, then there was a drastic spike, 21% increase in depression among boys and 50% increase of depression among girls. These upticks are reflected in suicide rates. After suicide also declining during the 1990s, stabilizing in the 2000s, the suicide rate for teens has also risen again. 46% more 15 to 19-year-olds committed suicide in 2015 than in 2007. And two and a half times more 12 to 14-year-olds killed themselves. Now she says it is the paradox of the iGen. The iGen is known as the optimistic, self-confident, but they cover a deep vulnerability, even depression in real life. Twinge writes, she went as far to say this, quote, it's not an exaggeration to describe iGen as being on the brink of the worst mental health crisis in decades. Much of this deterioration can be traced to their phones. End of quote. So let me give you some help. The same help that Lot needed. You said he had a smartphone? No, he had eyeballs that affected his brain. He had ears that affected his brain so that 2 Peter 2 says he was tortured in his soul by watching, by listening, by observing the wicked lifestyle. So let me give you some points here. These aren't on the screen. You want to write them down, they may help. Number one, this just in case you want to know where we are. We're still at number five, giving you some parenting thoughts here. Number one, delay social media as long as possible. Delay social media as long as possible. A journalist, Nancy Jo Sales, S-A-L-E-S, wrote a fascinating but also frightening book titled American Girls, Social Media and the Secret Lives of Teenagers. I just want to say, if you were to read this, you would delay social media as long as possible. But here's what I concluded after reading this. The Bible had it figured out before she did. But she recounts a conversation with one teen girl who said to her, social media is destroying our lives. Then Sales asked her, so why don't you get offline? 
The teen girl responded, because then we would have no life. You say, my kids don't believe that. Then you don't know what your kids are watching. They may not be convinced of that statement, but they're surrounded by people who are. And the moment you allow a young person to enter into the realm, the ocean of social media, then they're being told day in, day out, every second, that if you really want to live, you need to watch this post. Have you ever looked at some of these posts? Where, where, where people are, are giving you what they're doing in private? Have you ever looked at it and thought, well, who in the world's filming this? And you're not in private. You just posted it in public. You've got to be extremely narcissistic to be an influencer on social media. Isn't that the problem? And there are insecure, intimidated, introverted narcissists that love to watch extroverted narcissists. Social media is where teens look for life. But it's where it costs them their lives. Parents, you've got to help your kids to see this paradox. But it's hard for you to convince them of that when they see you do it. Social media, unwisely abused, is going to cost something extremely precious. How do you know? Ask Lot. What he saw and what he heard, it tortured him, but he couldn't stop it. Remember, God gave two institutions for social interaction and communication. Number one, the home. Number two, the church. Until you've championed those two. Why would you look outside of that for something else? Until you've championed communication in the home, why go outside and look at somebody else's home on social media? Until you've championed it in the church, why would we go outside of that into the, the plains that are well watered? It may not be Sodom, but it sure is getting us closer to it. The home in the church. Those are, two, those are two of God's social outlets for his people. That's a good place to say amen. amen. That's what the Bible teaches. Amen. Number next. Delay smartphones as long as possible. Delay smartphones as long as possible. Isn't that a nice way of saying it? I didn't really get too much. Good job, Pastor. I thought that was the way I wanted to say it was, quit being an idiot. Stop giving your kids a smartphone. But I thought I'd go the nicer route, the more pastor-esque route. Delay smartphones as long as possible. Once you introduce your child to mobile Connected smartphone. By the way, it's not a good idea ever, 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 ever for Brother Autry to get an iPad while leading the choir. It just is not a good idea. Just no, I thought about it. Nope, not a good idea. 
There is no telling what we would see. <laughs> but we'll pray about it, though. We'll, we'll pray about it. Listen, parents, once you introduce your child to a mobile connected smartphone with texting and apps like Instagram, Snapchat, parental controls are virtually futile. I'll offer just one example of how this plays out. How many have ever gotten spam on a text by way of your text stream? Not an app, but just your text stream. You've got spam. Anyone ever received spam? Your kids can be exposed to sexualized conversations, nude selfies, and you may never even know it. In her book, I mentioned the journalist Nancy Jo Sells about the American girls. She investigates the troubling phenomenon of girls receiving unsolicited nude selfies from boys in text, often as a first step in showing interest in them. And boys often ask the girls for the pictures in return. And, and what happens is parents are so often naive. There's not a, I cannot think of a Bible college where there's not been a problem in Bible college among those who are going to Bible college for ministry where this has not been an issue and a problem. What I'm saying is it can happen anywhere, any place, and any time. But there are virtually no parental filters to prevent a nude selfie from arriving on your child's smartphone via text, Snapchat, even if your child doesn't seek for them. I know there are softwares. I know there, there are filters. There's... there's uh, um, accountable to you and there's, there's other things but I'm saying that there is no 100% safe proof form of having a smartphone where this is not going to be a problem potential problem so I simply say delay smartphones as long as possible 40% of teens use Snapchat it's actually higher than that and this is an older number one of the advantages for that is because pictures can be sent and they'll expire and there's throwaway selfies that no one can detect. I was preaching at a camp recently and it was 7th graders, 12-year-olds at camp. And there were more girls that I was sitting down with, with the counselor, helping walk them through the tragedy of having seen pornography simply because they were handed a phone that they had asked for. Twelve-year-olds, little girls. These were preachers' kids. These were Bible college professors' kids. These were good kids. learn some lessons from Lot. In the smartphone age, sexting has become normative to the teens. They're potent devices. Resist the pressure to give your kid one and don't leave your old phones or your phones laying around. Inside the home, here's another thought. Inside the home, take control of the Wi-Fi. Turn off the Wi-Fi at a certain time. 
There are apps that can help you do it. You can do it. If you don't know how to do it, Brother Cherry can help with some of these things. But, but you don't have to have Wi-Fi going through the night. Turn it off. Number next, keep screens out of your children's bedroom. They don't need a TV in a, in a room. They don't need a laptop. They don't need a computer sitting in the room. It can sit somewhere else just fine. It's not going to get lonely sitting out in the living room by itself or by your bed. Another thought is recenter parenting on gaining and keeping your child's heart. Recenter parenting on gaining and keeping your child's heart. Listen, smartphones do not invent new sins. They just amplify every existing temptation of life and they manifest those temptations in pixels and high-def surfaces like never seen before. Old temptations are given new labels of attraction and addiction and accessibility. And this simply means that the tension and anxiety that parents feel in the pit of their stomachs in the digital age, it comes from the realization that we are waging an all-out war for the affections of our children. But it's a good fight. We must win this battle. That's what God has given you children to do. And so that parents can win their hearts and keep their hearts. This is why, what's so frightening. Parents, it, it, we've always been at war for the affections of our kids. And the digital age just exposes our parental laziness a little more quickly. Once we as parents and pastor humble ourselves to self-criticize our own smartphone abuse, we can in turn then be a help to our kids. Remember, the, the, the message of the Bible is guard your heart with all diligence. Why? Because out of it are the issues of life. We want to help them to stay sensitive, not, because, not become desensitized. The digital age is scary, it's exhausting, but it opens up phenomenal new opportunities to help us disciple teens and our young people. Let me give you another thought. As a family, I know we're talking about the dangers of what we see and what we hear and don't get involved in the social media. You can live without it, it's addicting. And if we were to be honest, we were in a small group with honesty, many would say, I waste too much time. It's done me more harm than it has good. And while we may think we're handling it a lot better than what these kids could handle it, the truth be told, we're not handling it all that well because we too have become numb to the things of God as a result of it. But while we're focusing, on, we've got to be aware that's a battle, that's a giant that we have to face. Here's something on the positive. As a family... Be deliberate at dinners, car rides, and vacations. Be deliberate. Make the dinner table, car rides together, family vacations, phone-free zones. I'm regularly amazed how the pressures of life get voiced at dinner, a car ride, or just unplugging at a family getaway. 
unhurried time together, decompressing from the day is, is very fruitful. What happened at school? Getting to know my kids, it happens so often at dinner. This fellowship carries over in more intense ways. Family vacations. But I can lose all of that and I can miss it all just by pulling out the phone, being distracted, being engrossed in entertainment, all in the name of, I just got to text somebody. I got to do some work. And I'm missing one of the greatest works. How many of you have a 10-year-old? Pick a number, raise your hand. Keys, and we're getting ready to have a 10-year-old. Anybody else have a 10-year-old? All right. All right. And here's, here's a stagger. I was figuring up these numbers. Listen. If your child is 10 years old, 3,650 days have already gone by. You only have 2,920 left. Focus on getting their heart. Spend time. Some of the greatest missionaries sitting in this room called parents. Some of the greatest discipleship lessons that will take place may be at a bedside of your child. Have fun with your children. Clean. Have fun clean. Have you ever thought about having, I say it, I'm thinking, that's not even possible. Someone said cleaning house with your kids around is like brushing your teeth with Oreos. It's just not possible. <laughs> so my wife kills them and then I try to heal them after the cleaning session takes place and Have fun. You know, I've often been driven. I'm a, I've got to get from this goal to this goal, this task to this, this task. And I've planned some things. You've planned some vacations in the past. This is going to be the vacation of vacations. It will be epic. But then later on, years later, we talk about it. We'll look at pictures. They don't remember the point of the vacation that was the center point, the highlight, the most costly point of it. What they remember is, Daddy tripping on the curb and falling down. They thought that was the vacation. They remember the bag of chips that we got at the gas station because it had Bucky's on the bag. That was the vacation. That was just the pit stop getting us there. And I learned that so often in the course of life, we miss the things that make up life. Parents, read aloud to your children. Read to them. Read out loud. You say, I don't read well. Well, they'll find it funny, but read out loud. Tell your children you love them every day. And then after you tell them, do the very best you can to prove it to them every day. The greatest need of our teens today is not some new restrictions and new dumb phones and 
contracts and limits, though all those things help. Their greatest need is a connection to Jesus Christ through the body called the church where they can thrive in Christ. They can serve and be served. Our young people need to find a necessary place as a legitimate part of a healthy church. Keep building faithful families, moms and dads. Keep focusing on your, your mission field called the home. Keep sowing and keep sowing and keep sowing for soon. If you don't give up, you will reap what you have sown. Listen to your young people. Listen to our teens. Don't mock them. Please don't laugh at them. Well, I mean, some, some are pretty goofy, but... But help cast a vision that they can take some great risk trusting God and obeying God. Don't dream small dreams for your kids. Oh, I want my kids to go off and be a doctor. Stop. Stop with the small dreams. Be a doctor. I want them to be a great scientist. What? You're, you're, you're trying to create your kids to be another lot? Why don't you tr train them, teach them, lead them to know God and surrender to God lock, stock, and barrel? Be the parent today that you want your kids to remember tomorrow. Let me give you a last thought, number six, a lesson we can learn from Lot the loser. Let me give you two more. Let me give you this one. Number six, when you disregard God's invitations, you reject God. When you disregard God's invitations, you reject God. Do you know that Abraham, as we've already said, that God showed him some great things, what God wanted to do with him, and Lot had the same opportunity to experience the blessings of God. Remember, God told Abraham in Genesis 12 that those that will do good to you, bless you, God says, I will bless them. Lot would have been part of them. Lot had every opportunity to experience the blessings of God. God gave uh, Lot, a friend, a friend whose name was Abraham, who happened to be the friend of God. But what happened is Lot disregarded the things that God was giving to him. God gave Lot a way out, an escape in Genesis 14 when he had been held captive. In Genesis chapter number 19, God was being merciful to him through his uncle Abraham who was pleading and seeking that God would intervene. God was good to Lot, but Lot disregarded him. And we're told in Genesis chapter 19 that how this started was Lot was looking, lifting up his eyes and looking at a distance. And so that in Genesis 19, the men of God came into the city and told Lot, you've got to get out of here. You've got to get your family out of here. Lot tried to warn his family. He tried to stand up and be a testimony. He tried to tell them God has spoken. And the Bible says that his family mocked him. They, they listened to him as one who mocked. 
In other words, they couldn't take them serious. We haven't seen you serious for God in the past. Why should we take you serious now? And the Bible says that Lot lingered. In fact, it's Genesis chapter number 19 and verse 16. While he lingered, the men laid hold upon his hand. I was reading about one of the, the, uh, the fires there in California that took place. And when they had warned the folks to abandon and to desert their areas to get out, they said they'd go back and they would look at the charred remains of those who didn't make it out. And they said it was, it was quite terrifying to think that there were some who could have gotten out. They didn't get out because some were charred holding on to a TV, to possessions. And I thought about Lot. Lot, you need to get out. And when he tried to speak up, I've seen men get serious. They get moved. I'm going to stand up and I'm going to tell my wife and children, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And the kids go, yeah, right. The wife goes, yeah, we've been here before. It won't last. And rather than the man being strong and of good courage and draw nigh to God and stick with him, they just go back to lingering. Wait for the next revival meeting. Wait for the next men's advance to come around. Maybe I'll try it again. Balot looked. It went from looking to living to lingering. And then Lot lost. He lost. See, when you reject the invitations that God has given to you, when you disregard the gifts that God's given to you, in essence, you're rejecting God. Remember in Acts chapter five, their names were Ananias and Sapphira. God killed them not because of what they gave. No, he killed them because of what they pretended. Long before COVID, they put on a mask. They were acting all in, but they were not all in. And Peter said these words in Acts 5, you've not lied to me. But as I read it, I say, yes, they did. But what Peter is saying is, I'm not the difference maker. The Holy Spirit is. He says, you've not lied to me, you lied to God. Peter didn't deal with them, God did. And the same is true in Lot's life, what God was giving to him and helping him with and giving as a gift and as an invitation and as a way of escape, he disregarded. He disregarded it. He disregarded it. He didn't pay attention to it. He, he blew it off. And in essence, he rejected God. Let me say, this is not self-serving. This is serving you. But you don't have to go out of here on the biggest loser list. Ephesians chapter 4, God has given to his church leadership gifts. And he gave some apostles, some prophets. They've passed off the scene. And then he's given some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the work of the ministry. 
The Bible teaches that God gives every one of his people gifts, but he gives to his church men who are equipped to be able to help. But so often you disregard the body that God has given to you called the church and you disregard a pastor and yet you want the blessings and the benefit of following, but you shortcut the process. I say it often. I preach to a lot more than I pastor. Preach to a lot, pastor a few. If I pastor around you, it's not good for you. I said it this morning, one of the ways you can tell which road you're on is whether or not you want to know. You don't want your boat rocked. You don't want it untied from the dock. Jesus has been trying to tell you, like he has Peter in Luke 5, let's go back out into the deep, and you've been arguing with him. When you disregard what God has given, you're rejecting God. You're rejecting Him. Let me give you another one. You still with me? Amen. Number seven. Here's where I think it all boils down to. Moms and dads, young people, Bible college students, Bible fellowship leader, deacons, Pastor Ingram. When we neglect our personal experience with God, we cannot win. We can't. We cannot. You see, Lot failed to prioritize his walk with God. Would you turn over with me to Genesis 13? Genesis chapter 13, where we were this morning. In Genesis 13, Lot is not in Sodom. But a preacher could have told Lot, Lot, you're going to Sodom. Lot could have gotten offended by saying, I don't even know where Sodom is. I don't want Sodom. Why would I ever want to go to Sodom? Notice in Genesis 13, verse number 12, Abram, the friend of God, remember, dwelled in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelled in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent, what's the next two words? Toward Sodom. Now notice verse number 18. Then Abram removed his tent and came and dwelt in the plain of Mamre, which is in Hebron, and built, he built there an altar unto the Lord. 
Abraham's the friend of God. He walked with God, the man of faith. Why is this? Because he pitched his tent, but he built his altar. Lot, one of the biggest losers in the Bible, tortured his soul by what he saw, what he heard, what he was living in the midst of. He lost his testimony. He lost opportunities. He lost his wife. He lost his children. He lost descendants for centuries to come because he pitched his tent towards Sodom, but he never built his altar. I am most certain, Brother Brock, you've preached probably some good messages on building an altar. What made God use Abraham so effectively was that he learned to pitch a tent and build his altar. Now, can I tell you where I find in almost every single counseling scenario, Brother Don, almost every single one. Every one of our young people who finally get desperate and want to get help. Every one of our Bible college students who have ever gone to Bible college since I've been here, every problem goes back to this one. Let me see your Christ Walk journal. Do you know what I find? They pitched their altar while trying to build their tent when they should be pitching their tent and building an altar. And do you know this matter of time with God is nothing, nothing new to any of you. But it's the greatest battle that some of you face. What are you getting at? You're setting the trajectory to be just like Lot. If you don't learn to pitch your tent and build your altar. Lot pitched his tent towards Sodom. Had he built an altar and he worked on his relationship with God, that tent, he did pick it up. Because he eventually moved into Sodom. But he could have said, this is not right. It doesn't please my God. Where's Uncle Abraham, the friend of God? I need help. I don't want to lose any more than what I've already lost. But because he pitched his altar so much so that it was no longer there. Oh, was he saved? He was saved. He was saved. He was saved. But he lost in every other area of his life because he didn't have a personal relationship with Almighty God. See, sin is not just breaking God's laws. It's breaking his heart. You cannot move your tent nearer and nearer to Sodom without breaking the heart of God. You can move your tent nearer to Sodom, but you cannot take your altar with you. And when there are people who are getting closer to Sodom, closer to the world, you're becoming desensitized. It's not because you're spending time with God. Let me just go on a little bit further with this. 
in the matter of the church, and people have all kinds of ideas about church, I just want to tell you, when it comes to the building of the church, it's not my business. That's what God does. He's the builder of the church. We're to cooperate with him. Jesus said, I will build my church. And he's a pretty good builder. And Jesus is the founder. He's given us the plans. He's given us the provision. He's given us the power. But when churches are taking a hard left, and they're starting to move into the entertainment side of things, and they're starting to move into the comedy side of things, and they're starting to move into this, this uh, other sphere of trying to engage and trying to reach people with something else other than the power of God, that was not conceived in an intimate relationship with God. No, no new evangelical ever comes out of their prayer closet with the fire of God in his bosom and saying, I believe we're going to make a hard left. No, someone who's intimate with God is going to say like Elijah, let's pour some water on the altar and let's watch what God can do. I'm telling you, the answer is experiencing God personally. It's communication. When you fail to get a hold of God, you're going to fail to get a hold of others. Lot left God and it destroyed his home. Listen, parents, listen, dads, godly parenting, it requires far more than tips and techniques. It begins with knowing God, experiencing God. An apathetic Christian is someone who has settled for eternal life someday instead of abundant life today. When you look at your Bible, you need to ask three questions. Number one, you need to ask, what did it mean then? Number two, you need to ask, how does it apply now? And number three, you need to ask, how does it apply to me personally? What did it mean then? What does it mean now? And how does it apply to me personally? And listen, you've not gotten into the Bible until you ask that third question. How does this apply to me personally? It's been said that there are three kinds of people. Those, number one, who are afraid. Number two, those who don't know enough to be afraid. But number three, those who know their Bible. You get into the Bible, you experience God there's no room for being afraid. Your kids don't need a secondhand knowledge of Jesus. They need to see moms and dads. I am convicted. I am convinced my kids have seen a phone in my hand more than they've seen the Bible in my hand. It ought not be. Even if it's the Bible we're looking at on, on our phones, I would much rather them see a leather-bound book and some pages, a Bible that will be held in my hand. I'd rather have that image than them recognizing a digital device in my hand. Listen, a second-hand experience of Jesus will never give us first-hand faith. There's no way Peter would have gotten out of the boat if he had not heard from Jesus personally. Let me say this last thing. May our children never have to climb over our mediocre Christianity to follow Jesus Christ. Let's stand together, please.